Welcome to a special edition of the Enrollment Edge. Um, let me explain what special edition means today. Um, we, uh, we've been doing the Enrollment Edge here uh, at Enrollment Fuel for uh, going on two years. And uh, it was kind of an experiment at the beginning. And uh, we kind of jumped headlong into it. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, a couple of years later, we made it work and we're still doing it. Uh, this is a special edition because uh, it's paying tribute to a very special person that we lost uh, this year in June. Uh, our producer, Allison Walls, uh, produced the Enrollment Edge, uh, came into it with me and kind of was the experiment. And she's a fearless person, and she decided that she would want to produce it with me. And, and uh, we lost her this year. And it's been uh, one of those moments of difficulty and challenge and and celebration and sorrow all at the same time. Uh, Allison was one of those very special people. And I think the world is, has lost one of the best people that we've had. Um, but this edition uh, was interesting because at the very beginning, Allison and I didn't know if we could do this. Uh, we started to think about what the topics might be and so forth. And, and we came to a conclusion that we probably should do an experiment, maybe a test, a test episode. And uh, she volunteered to be a guest. And so uh, we brainstormed on what kind of topics we'd talk about. And, and we, we came to uh, the topic of student support during COVID. And it's something that uh, is near and dear to uh, Allison's heart. She was always the person that, uh, you know, her training was student life, uh, campus ministries. She was an ordained pastor. Student services was uh, always near and dear to her heart. She, she loved taking care of students and caring for them. And, and consequently, this was a, a really important topic for her to talk about. Uh, how was, how was, uh, how were schools and how were students being taken care of during a time of, of difficulty? And, uh, and I thought this would be an interesting uh, topic at the time, but now it's more than interesting. It's suddenly it's very important because while Allison never liked to be in the spotlight, she was always the person that was the deep supporter. Um, I would always call somebody like that, the silent servant. Uh, she, she cared for and loved on people, but didn't necessarily like the recognition for it. And um and so I thought this would be a great tribute uh, to someone and in appreciation for her work on this, uh, on this podcast. She's, she did some tremendous work. She worked long hours. She uh, studied and, and self-taught herself to, uh, to make, this, uh, make this all work. She did a great job. And so uh, I wanted to make sure that uh, we, we put together uh, this episode in, uh, in tribute. Uh, to Allison Walls. Uh, she's one of my favorite people that I've ever worked with. Uh, and, uh, and we miss her at enrollment field deeply. Uh, so this one's, this one's for Allison. So today's topic, we're going to be talking about student success and retention with our guest and expert, Allison Walls. Allison began her career in youth ministry and found her skills at junior high, uh, working with junior hires that could be translated to residence life at the college level. Allison earned her master's degree in student development and counseling and administration and took on the role of director of student life at a small private college in Oklahoma City. 
Throughout her time in student life, Allison began to discover the unique relationship between retention and recruiting and worked closely with admissions to create a smooth entry for incoming students. In doing so, Allison became passionate about the impact the students possess in communication and relationships and, and have overall student experience. Welcome to Enrollment Edge, Allison. We're glad to have you today. Thank you. Man, that made me sound uh, a lot cooler than I think I am. <laughs> oh, you're, you're super cool. Uh, not only are you our first guest, but frankly, student success is one of those really elusive concepts within enrollment management that it feels like, and this is kind of a trite saying, that, that everybody's in charge of it, so therefore nobody's in charge of it. So- yeah, and that definitely is seen on a small school scale a little bigger, I think, because you have you don't always have dedicated positions to advisors and testers and, and those kinds of things. So everybody starts picking up those pieces. Exactly. You know, one of the things that is notable right now in kind of growing admissions practices, the front end, is this idea of behavior scoring and behavior modeling. So we're, we're really looking at the front end with the retention mindset because retention really looked at risk behaviors, didn't it? Yeah. And honestly, we had used for several years some, some sorts of behavior scoring for retention, whether that is an early alert system where a coach or a faculty member could throw in a form or throw up, basically throw up a flag and say, I'm worried here. Something is happening here. And that gives us an early alert to intervene before maybe a failing grade or before a dropout situation. And so I think the same can be true in admissions in a really, really effective way because you're seeing who's rising to the top but you're also seeing who might be dropping off your list of interested students. And so that gives you a lot of room to work on yield between the point where you are introduced to a student and they are become a butt in the seat on day 10 right. or census date. So I think it's it gives us a lot of opportunity to kind of measure in that in-between time who's most interested, but who can we gain that maybe isn't talking to us, but they're doing a lot of things to hint towards interest. So looking at both small college, private colleges, large colleges, community colleges, student success can be defined in a number of different ways. I think bottom line, we talk about student success, get them back the next year, move them towards graduation, get them back the next year. So if that's our point on the horizon, we're, we're wanting to get them back that second year and so on. What from first year to second year, were the biggest challenges that you saw that you see now in bringing students back year two? I would add that there's maybe an even earlier line that we have to get them to jump in persistence just into that second semester. We have several things at play. And I think this current environment this year with COVID-19 has maybe heightened those, but not necessarily changed them. I think we see students who are really struggling financially to make tuition payments. And that maybe they have scraped together enough and mom and dad are able to contribute enough to get one semester or one year under their belt. But then everything's wiped out from there forward. And so how do they kind of keep scraping together? And that could be aided. The issue could be aided if an institution kind of lets 
things roll from semester to semester and says, you know what, you still owe 3000 but that's a low enough balance that will let you start classes in the spring. But now it's 6000 before you can start classes in the fall. And so we see that happen. And it's for a good reason, right? That we're trying to retain those students and not lose them in that first semester. And so I think having our eyes really on that financial aid piece really early and not just looking at how do we pay for the semester for those incoming students, but what is a sustainable system that we can put the student through, maybe some recurring scholarships, maybe some academic aid if they retest and they test, well, now testing is complicated this year, but if they can retest and get into a different scholarship bracket, what are the things that we can do to help them get some sustainable funding, I think is really important. Federal work study comes into that, jobs on campus, and all of that gets complicated. But I think sometimes in our recruitment mindset, we're working on just getting them in the door that first year. But the problem with that is if we can't build something sustainable, whether that's finances or grades or parents and family involvement, we're going to lose them the second semester. And then I have to recruit two students next year to make up for that. Exactly. And so, so I think finances is a big, back to your question, finances is a huge piece. Academic adjustment is another huge piece. You know, some students will walk in from a particular high school and not really have a big adjustment academically to colleges. They were prepared well in their high schools. They were maybe just kind of knew how to learn. I don't necessarily think students are smarter or dumber. Than other students, but I think some students are prepared to learn differently. That is better for college environments. And it's a little more self-driven in college than high school. And so motivation is a big factor in that. And so I think we need to be conscious of that in recruiting and even that first semester programming, uh, first year programming. How are we preparing students to learn differently Um, and to be self-starters on that level. Because we do have, we see students every year, right, that end up on probation the first semester because they thought high school was going to be the same as college. And they hang out and eat pizza till four in the morning in the residence hall and then play video games for another two hours and then try to skate through class the next day. And so it's that mixture of freedom for Mm -hmm. really the first time. And then also a different academic scale that they're not used to. So I think preparing students to go into that kind of first semester in a different way really can help. And then I think the third piece is the people that socially just are not connecting, whether Mm. that is a transfer student that comes in and never really figures out how to make friends. I always really was kind of focused on our our commuter students um, Mm. because a lot of times they're just living in extended high school. And they're still living at home. How do we connect them to campus, not just to other students, but also to organizations, to faculty, to mentors, to librarian that they might connect with? And I think that's really important. One of the key tools, I can't remember where I heard this, but one of the things that has always stuck in my brain about retention is if a student has to tell 10 or more people that they're leaving they're much, much, much less likely to leave. Mm -hmm. So who are those 10 people in every student's life? Who do we build in? We have coaches, we have faculty, but it has to be faculty that they know and that they have a relationship with, right? So um, mentors, student affairs personnel, RAs, RDs, 
student activities and advisors and a student success coach. How do we build those people? You know, at one of the institutions I worked with, our financial aid officer for freshman students was so incredible. She had a relationship with every single one of the students coming in. Well, that helps because they feel like there's somebody they have to tell if there's an issue and they're going to have to leave. So I'm always constantly thinking about that social aspect of how to plug them into the campus community in a major way. So you bring up several points, uh, you know, just to reiterate, financial aid, money, cost, expenditure, maybe unforeseen, maybe not realistic at the very beginning when students enter school, what that debt load is going to be, what looks like the parents' involvement, students versus parents, portion of the pie paying for school, the academic adjustments. So many students change majors. They're moving, you know, slight adjustments within programs that are far afield from one to the next. And and those adjustments are difficult, but adjustments also being able to just understand how to do college, how to do college Mm -hmm. and the expectation for college. And then you talk about socially not being connected and uh, and a design of a school to try to draw them in. But one of the things that that seems to kind of connect all of them, their thread is pressure, Mm -hmm. the pressure to make it through the pressure to do well, the pressure not to waste money, the pressure to find a degree that you're going to love from the day one and find your career in. You talk a little bit about as a student life development person that's going to be working with students, that anxiety and pressure is tremendously difficult to work with, isn't it? I think... Yes, I don't think we can underestimate stress, anxiety, and pressure on those first-year students, um, or all students in general. And I think this year, 2020, is just exacerbating that. You know, Not only do you have the same pressures that have come from 2019 and before, but you also now have a job market that doesn't look good for anybody right now. Right. You have rising student debt. You have uncertainty in how things are going to look and change. I think that a lot of these changes we've had in 2020 are going to stick with us. How many companies are going to stay remote? How many companies are going to figure out they can do what they were doing with less people? And and that's going to have long-term effects on the job market. So I think that's true. I think things are going to change and that stress and that pressure is just building and building and building. One of the things I used to always tell students like, My degree was in youth ministry 15 years ago, or now almost 20 years ago. I'm not doing anything in youth ministry anymore or connected to youth ministry. So I think taking that pressure off that I have to pick the one thing that I'm going to do for the rest of my life. You know, our parents' Mm -hmm. generation did that. They found one job and they were in it forever. But that's so rare now. Uh, That doesn't happen anymore. And so giving them the freedom to think, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get the degree. I'm going to try it for a few years. And it may lead to something else that I love to do. And that's okay. I used to tell prospective students all the time, let's not choose what you're going to get your gold watch when you retire in, just what you're going to do next. You know, this generation is going to jump from job to job, quite often career to career, you know, kind of the the lifelong learning model and, and will kind of ebb and flow. Uh, through their career. And, and that's a good thing. I think that uh, the, the parent, the next generation that's, that is uh, kind of handing off the expectations needs to 
really pull back a, a great deal on the expectation that what you have to start with day one is what you end with on, you know, at 65 or whenever you retire. And that's just really not realistic anymore. So we've, we've identified a problem in retention. I think anxiety, stress, expectations, and then it just amplifies things like financial aid and cost and debt and academic expectations and, and social connections. Students that are isolated, they're not connected anywhere. They're not going to find that support. They're not going to find the, the ability to be able to find others like them that are going to walk the journey through college with them. So from the, the student life practitioner standpoint, what are those things? What are the strategies that are showing promise with this generation to work other than increased meds? You know, we just don't want to continue to, to medicate these students. Uh, what, are, what are the things that are going to help them from the college practitioner's point of view? So we shouldn't be handing out Xanax in the residence halls? Is that- yeah, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I think not that I I don't have any problem with medication. I think that it definitely is necessary and helps students and parents and everyone alike at different times when it's necessary. But I do think there's other things from a programmatic standpoint that an institution can really do to push us toward a healthier, holistic life for our students. One of the things that I always was a really big proponent of is just mental health programming. I know a friend right now in residence life who has created a socially distanced community for journaling. And so their residence hall had an event where everybody could pick up a journal packet and kind of create their own journal. Now, obviously, this is a little bit geared towards women, but she did this event where they could pick up their journal, they could create it however they wanted to. It was kind of a craft project. They had all kinds of craft supplies in it. And then every day on social media, there was a journal prompt and it allowed students to kind of work through some of their issues with COVID, some of their issues with isolation that they were feeling and still promote social distancing, but also encourage them to get outside and take a walk and think about this question while you're outside. So I think mental health programming doesn't have to look like go to this suicide prevention Mm -hmm. seminar, which Definitely has its place on a college campus, let me tell you. But I think it can be a little more subtle than that and a little bit more approachable than that and just encouraging students to talk through their issues. Social media is a huge, huge tool for that. Utilizing social media in an interactive or challenging way, the way that 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 program did. But I also think there's some physical wellness programming that can help with that. I've seen one one residence hall said this month, let's get a thousand miles on this floor. So everybody mm, was walking, yeah. running, rowing, swimming, whatever they wanted to do. Yeah. But as a floor, they sure. wanted to get a thousand miles in a month. And so I thought that was super helpful because then people could go on a walk together. Mm-hmm. It encouraged community. There was kind of a, come on, let's do this mentality that helps. I think Anytime you change your routines, physical activity is hard, right? So now we're talking about students that are coming, leaving their whole lives, moving in with a bunch of people. You know, one thing we don't think about is 
most students these days have never had a roommate ever before in their lives, mm, even right. a sibling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so now they're all of a sudden in a room with one or two other people having to deal with that on top of classes, on top of all these things. And, and of course, you know, the 24 seven access to cafeteria food that got yeah. us all in college. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think that really encouraging a physical outlet for stress is really good for our students too, in a, in a way that can be positive and not shaming by any means. So I think, I think those programming things, allowing students to talk it out, mentoring uh, relationships and really teaching students how to mentor other students um, and do peer mentoring and not just have it be, let's go to lunch and talk about all the boys in your life, but let's go ahead to little lunch and talk about the deeper things going on and how you're really doing in life. And I think all of those add to the mental health stability of our students. There's so much of what you're talking about that is, is centered around relationships and centered around mm-hmm. connecting students with one another. This generation really is having some major challenges in doing that mm-hmm. deeply. You know, it's much, much broader. I, I, I have 400 or 500 or 5,000 friends on, you know, my social media, but I don't necessarily have many deep friends. And so this is a little bit challenging for, I think, maybe this generation to to grab hold of and conceptualize. So it, it doesn't seem to be any one approach is going to work as much as all of the approaches are going to work in an effective way. But the relationship building, now talk a little bit about in the world of COVID, in the world of remote learning, that seems to have elevated the challenges even that much more in building some deep meaningful relationships. I feel like five or 10 years from now, I'm not sure what education, college education looks like. I don't know kind of the ratio of online learning versus in-class learning and how it's going to change over the next several years. But what I think there might, might be happening is, is a renaissance of appreciation for in-class, face-to-face learning. Because I think there are a number of folks that have identified this isn't really for them. This isn't a good fit to be online. I'm not connecting with anybody on my computer screen. So how does one in student life role tackle that? I mean, it's, it's kind of commuter amplified. You never see them other than, you know, on a screen or in an email. I think you're right. I think we have to take many approaches and try to hit the middle, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think we have, you know, I think there's some really creative social media programs that you can do. Like I just mentioned some journaling techniques and stuff like that. I think back to my master's program, which was actually an online program. And I developed very close friendships with some classmates that I didn't meet until graduation. And so so I think back to how did that happen? That happened through homework assignments that we couldn't figure out. So we call each other at one in the morning when we're trying to figure it out. It happened through homework assignments that asked us to bring our outside lives in. So bringing in outside experience into the virtual classroom, which allowed us to kind of get to know each other in that atmosphere. But I also think there are some things that I've seen in the world, in my neighborhood, in my community with COVID that definitely could translate well to Mm. whether it's a residence hall or a a commuter population. I think about the teddy bear search. I don't Mm. know if you saw that in your neighborhoods, but my neighborhood, you know, was feeling so 
much emotion for these kids that are kind of trapped inside and had no way to interact or have anything fun going on. So on our neighborhood Facebook group, it started popping up, just put a teddy bear in your window. And it became like a hunt and find Mm -hmm. for all of these kids where they could go on a walk with their family and try to find particular bears or try to, you know, and I think those kinds of things that we can do, whether it's a scavenger hunt, you know, across campus and, you know, I often have thought about geocaching and how, man, that could really take off in 2020 in a way that it, it was popular, what, 10 years ago, I don't even know. But geocaching is a way that you could still be socially distant, you can still encourage those things, but it brings a feeling of we're all in this together. And there's a piece of community that happens in that. So I think some of it happens in the classroom, but I think some of it has to be programmatic and has to be really thought through and intentional. You know, you talked about relationship building. And one of the things I always taught my staffs was if you're doing relationships in a way that looks unintentional, so, hey, you want to go to the game room and play ping pong, looks Mm -hmm. unintentional. However, if I am intentional with that time, I'm intentional about the questions I'm asking during that Mm -hmm. time. I'm intentional about the direction of the conversation. I'm intentional about maybe asking if we want to ride together on the way or ride together home or go get a Coke afterwards. Those things are intentional on my part. It becomes intentional unintentionality. And that really takes the pressure off a culture that says one-on-one relationship is stressful and hard. And I don't want you to come that close because it's a kind of a side attack, right? Like you're coming in from a window instead of trying to bust through the front door. And I think that is really helpful. Obviously that gets a little complicated in 2020, but I think still very doable, very doable. Look at video games. How much do they talk during video games back and forth? So. Exactly. And it feels like we are learning more from the gaming world uh, in education than vice versa. We're learning more how to relate to students and their lives and how they interact with one another. And and in the end, the jury's still out, but will that impact their affinity, their loyalty, their determination to finish, their connection to faculty and staff and students and their friends and their community in a way that will, will keep them to graduation, that keep them to the point where They've earned that degree and they can, they can now take that degree into their careers. So, And I think that we see that in enrollment fuel itself, right? Like we have figured out that gamification sometimes on the recruiting end helps students feel connected faster. So um, creating some sort of game digitally where they're tracking points or logging in to see who's near them and, and doing those kinds of things makes them feel connected and increases yield because they feel connected from the very beginning instead of waiting till they're on campus to feel that. Right, right. You've been listening to The Enrollment Edge. Please join me again when we'll dive into yet another hot topic for college enrollment and marketing leaders. The Enrollment Edge is sponsored by Enrollment Fuel, a full-service student search and marketing company. Student recruitment is always changing. Maybe your college can use a trusted partner. I'm your host, Jay Feggie. Thanks for listening in.